Father, as we want to settle our hearts before you, we want to just pray, Lord, as we come to your word that you would, you would speak to us. But I'll see what we'd be listening. Father, we pray that by your spirit that you would captivate our hearts this morning. That you would be honored and glorified. Father, we would keep, Lord, just the wonderful gospel so central in our lives that it would just change our hearts. Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, change our hearts by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, we heard how Paul was was building the case for the prosecution against the wicked, against the evil, against the depraved. And actually, there's a much longer list, of course, of of of, uh, of problems in, in, in our sins, really, in chapter 1. And actually, it's a list that actually none of us could say it doesn't apply to us, and we can multiply tick boxes within that list. But it may surprise you to notice that Paul is not finished, because there, these are not the only people who stand accused. Paul now addresses the religious people, the ones who think, I'm okay, I haven't murdered anybody, I'm immoral, I'm, re- I'm, I'm religious, I cannot be under God's judgment. And what Paul wants us to understand, yes, the blatant sinners need to come to, need, need, will come under God's judgment, but equally so with the religious people who are full of pride and full of arrogance, we all stand accused. And we all need to start talking to Jesus. To ask him to send his spirit to open our eyes to see the true condition of our hearts. So that's where we're going. It's centered in the gospel. It's centered, that's, that's the whole book is all about the gospel of Christ. But let's have a look in more detail of what Paul is actually saying here. So Romans chapter 2, we're in verse 17. I'm going to read 17 to 24. So let's just read. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the fool, of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now this is pretty strong language, is it not? He's pretty direct. He's speaking to people who think they're good, who think they're moral, who think they're religious. In fact, he's speaking to his, his own people. Growing up in Northern Ireland, the police service over there was held with a great deal of respect by some parts of the community, but at the same time, by a great deal of suspicion and mistrust by others. But over recent years, there's been a number of very well-publicised cases, both in Northern Ireland, but also in, I guess, in the rest of the UK, that have exposed cover-ups and corruption and racism and mistrials of justice. The result is that the police force has become less and less trusted. 
The Hillsborough disaster is a prime example of this. And even though that we know it's only a small number, a small minority within the force that perhaps is corrupt, it gives the whole police force a bad name. So you see, God has chosen Israel. He's given them his law so that they could be the light and they could be a beacon to this world. But the Jewish people had taken God's law and they had broken every single one of them. The people who had been trusted to uphold the truth could not be trusted. Yet somehow they are still so proud of their moral decency and their virtues. But actually it's, it's, all, it's all a fake, according to Paul. In fact... It meant that even in the Old Testament, many of the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, they could not see any future of anything other than the total judgment by God. Because Israel, they hadn't just made a few mistakes, they had completely failed in the task that God had called them to do. But there's a wonderful, in fact a glorious God who has a solution even to all of this. And there's a reference in these verses, perhaps tucked away, but it's here about Isaiah 52. It's the suffering servant who would die for the sins of this world, the sins of Israel. Listen, there is always hope in the gospel. And Paul is very quick even to get this. Even as he is pointing out the problems, he is quick with a solution. The gospel. We are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and God sent his Messiah to take on himself the effects of all of this fear to establish a new covenant. But actually the, what, the point that Paul is making in these few verses, particularly in verses 21 to 23, is not that all the Jews have committed adultery or they have stolen or they have been robbing temples. In fact, there's no record of this. In fact, it would be ludicrous to think, in fact, shocking to think that Jews would ever want to take idols from a pagan temple. So Paul is speaking figuratively here. And what he's saying that underneath these outward, this outward religiosity, the Jews are worshipping idols just as much as those who are in the temple worshipping idols. They may say they are poor idols on the outside, but actually if inwardly they find meaning in power, in comfort, in possessions, in sex, and the list could go on, they are idolaters. An idol worship is putting anything in front of God. No matter how good that, that thing may be. Football. Our country worships football. Does it not? Shopping. Family. Good things can actually take God's place. They can become idols in our lives. And the tragic result of this, according to Paul, is that this kind of hypocritical religion is that non-Christians see this sort of behavior and they blaspheme God. The point is, just like our police force, it only takes a few people to be doing these things and it can completely damage the reputation of all of God's people. It damages God's name and people end up blaming God. But it's not God who has failed. And Paul is very clear that God has remained true to his calling despite the failure of his people. So I wonder what do people see when they look at your life? You may think it doesn't matter how you live, but it does. You may think as long as I put on a good outward face, 
it's going to be okay. And it's very easy for to have a religion of outward actions. Many people can appear moral on the outside, but what about the heart? This is where Paul is going. What about your heart? And Paul's criticism of the Jews was that they were not glorifying God among the Gentiles. And because of this, they were actually dishonoring God. So going to church on a Sunday is not enough. It's how you live out for Jesus the rest of the week. In other words, it's a heart issue. And ironically, the very law that the Jews claimed to be obeying actually was condemning them. So what you do in your personal life matters And people will see straight through those moral masks. We've heard about already that people will see through the moral masks. You be with someone for any length of time, so in your workplace or in a schoolroom, you may fool them for a while, but eventually people will see through because the true nature of our heart will come out. And we need a heart that is filled with his spirit. Nothing less will do. And God sees what's in the heart. He judges the secrets of men and women. And we are called to be God's chosen people to obey the one true God. And our world needs authenticity in those who claim to follow Christ. And if they don't see it, the only conclusion they can come to is that the church and therefore God's people are just no different to anybody else. Paul goes on. That's his first point. He just he's going to expand on that in chapter two and verse twenty-five to twenty-nine. It says this: circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcised merely outwardly and physically. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, one of my pet hates as an optician is when I go on holidays and I get along and, and I'm walking along the seafront, normally in, some, in, in, these, uh, in the Canary Islands, and there are people out there selling fake sunglasses. I notice them all. I'm not, they seem to be everywhere. I'm maybe just me being a little bit paranoid, but they're, they're selling these sunglasses with, which they're claiming to be Ray-Ban or Oakley or Chanel for tenner or for 20 quid. And most people's first thoughts when they look at them is, what an incredible price. That's such a great deal. I can't believe they're so cheap. Then you take a slightly closer look at them and reality dawns because they're not quite what they seem to be. There's something just not quite right about them. I've even seen them with the name being spelled wrong. That's pretty obvious. But, but actually in many cases, these sunglasses look remarkably like the originals. But the old saying is right. If it looks too good to be true... It's too good to be true. And what matters to the discerning sunglass buyer is not the price, but the quality that's inside the lenses. Do these, are these lenses going to protect my eyes? 
Are they, have they got a hundred percent UV protection in them? Or are they going to cause damage? And labels can be misleading. See, if you buy one of these fake sunglasses, you're probably going to be better off not wearing any sunglasses at all because these things are going to seriously damage your eyes. They're not good. If you've got a pair, throw them away. If you see them, don't buy them. Bit of advice for you. And Paul's point in this paragraph, not to do with sunglasses, but names and labels that can be misleading. There are many products out there that are not what they claim to be. And the product that Paul is talking about is God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. The label, the logo, if you like, is circumcision. And circumcision was the religious ceremony in which a Jew was brought into the community of Israel. But the tragedy was that the Jews depended on this physical mark instead of a spiritual reality it represents. And Paul's point, which would have seriously offended any Jewish person listening, is that the Jewish name could not be trusted. In fact, it was deceiving. Because what is going on on the inside does not match the outward label. Just like the fake sunglasses, what matters is what's going on on the inside. And God's people may have the outward signs of law-keeping, but their hearts are breaking the law. Outwardly, they look like Jews. Looks great at face value, but actually, they're fakes. But Paul isn't finished here, because he makes the point even more striking, because he says the very reverse is also true. Suppose a person isn't circumcised, but keeps the law. Outwardly, they don't have the label as being a Jew, but inwardly, they are. In fact, Paul says, they are in a much better position than the circumcised Jew who breaks the law. Again, what really matters is, really matters to God is not the outward appearance, but knowing that God's word is written on our hearts by his spirit. Again, Paul's bringing us back to the gospel, to Christ, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what is a true Jew, according to Paul? Well, it's someone who has a spiritual experience of the heart, not a mere outward operation. God is not impressed with outward religion or with outward formality. Your heart needs to be changed. But you can't do this, can you? You can't. It's not possible apart from Jesus. And that's what we must keep coming back to. The gospel, the cross, to Christ alone. Through faith in Christ, you're welcomed into a new family. This is opened up to everybody, irrespective of ethnic background, of outward label, of, of circumcision. It's not dependent on religious ceremony. So whether it be baptism, or christening, or prayer, or you can keep adding to that list, none of these things will change your heart only the Holy Spirit can do this. It's only through faith in Christ alone. We need Jesus. If Paul had a big drum, he would bang it so loud. We need Jesus. Moves me on to chapter 3, verse 1. Still reinforcing the same point. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. 
Let God be true and every human being a liar. It is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's faithfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. Now after reading chapter 2, you may begin to think that Paul has got something against the Jewish people. That he's some sort of vendetta against his own people, but actually that is not true. So Paul takes time to deal with three questions that they have raised And these questions may not necessarily be the ones that we would naturally begin to think about after reading chapter 1 and 2, but these are the objections and the questions that have been asked by the first century Jews. And the fact that Paul deals with them shows that he is a man who took time to think about the views of those that he is speaking to. He deals, he makes an effort to deal with all the objections to the gospel. So the first question, what advantage is it to be a Jew. Chapter 3, verse 1. His answer, every advantage. Especially because the word of God is entrusted to them. But again, there's a problem that's been already highlighted in the previous chapter. But let me explain with another illustration. See, there are a few things that I miss from back home in Northern Ireland. Both involve food, funny enough. The first is fruit loaves. In my opinion... You cannot buy anything quite as good over here. The second is tato crisps, particularly tato onion rings. I absolutely love them far too much. Now, actually, Rosie also likes tato onion rings probably just as much as me. So the last time I went back to Northern Ireland, I decided that I would, I would just leave enough room in my case to bring her back some tato crisps, a little gift, if you like. However... I made the mistake of buying those crisps on the day that I arrived rather than the day that I left. So it meant by the time I was going home, I had to go back to the shop again to buy some more crisps to replace the ones that I'd actually eaten. The thing is, see, I'd made a promise to Rosie. She had put her trust in me to deliver, and I really didn't want to let her down. So if you think about it, I'd made a commitment to her and she had entrusted me to deliver. But the temptation to keep all of those crisps to myself and eat them on the plane ride home was immense. You have no idea. But the whole point of being entrusted with something is that those crisps weren't actually mine. My purpose was to deliver them. And once we sort of understand something of this illustration, this passage perhaps becomes easier to understand because Paul's point is that the Jewish people, his own people, had been entrusted with the very word of God. It's actually translated um, in the ESV as the oracle. 
Perhaps a strange word, certain word we don't use very often, but it means a divine message. The Jews who are called the light of the world had been entrusted with God's message for all of creation. And their purpose was to deliver this message, to fulfill the trust, to demonstrate to the world that God is God. But they had failed. They had kept this message to themselves. Just a bit like the prodigal son in the parable that Jesus told where he's given this lump of money and he sells, he sells all the, all this valuable things that have been entrusted to him and then he wastes it and he squanders all the cash. So had the Jews. But actually, see, there's only one point in being a messenger and it's blatantly obvious. You are to deliver the message that you've been told to deliver. It's a bit like working for the Royal Mail and putting on the uniform and looking pretty impressive. But all you do all day is walk around and drink coffee in coffee shops and keep all the mail to yourself. You're not going to be in the job for very long. And this is exactly what Paul is saying against his fellow Jews. Israel had been faithless and they'd been useless messengers. He's on to question number two. Therefore, will the Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Good question. Paul says, no way. Absolutely not. If anything, it establishes it. But what is God going to do? Well, according to Isaiah, Paul refers to that in Romans 2 verse 24, his name has been maligned, God's name has been maligned and been blasphemed among the nations when it should have been praised. However, it's even worse than that because not only have the nations not received the right message, they have been given the wrong one. The God of Israel has been vilified and portrayed, and portrayed as a bad God. But with all of this, God has remained faithful to his original plan. The covenant promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. It's through the Holy Spirit that this will be made complete. And Paul does not abandon the idea that Israel is God's chosen people, but that under the new covenant, we are all called Jews. And this is what Paul is getting at. Even though you are not necessarily a Jew, you're called a Jew. And those who are referred to as circumcised may not necessarily be circumcised. Again, this is not about the outward appearance. It's the heart that matters. The main point that Paul wants us to understand in this little section is that God always remains faithful to his promises. Even when you are unfaithful, God is faithful. And you should be so thankful that you are his through Christ. Listen, if you're left to your own devices, whether it be your religious morality, whether it be your sinfulness, you fail. But through Christ, you have hope. You have a future. Through Christ, our sins have been dealt with. And Paul says, look, look at the gospel. Look at Christ. Look at what he has done for you. There is your hope. There is the reason why your heart is changed. Through him alone. He is the only solution. He took your punishment through his sacrificial death so that those who believe in him will receive forgiveness for sin and a new life through and in the Holy Spirit. Third question that we come to then is this one. Well, if our sins show his righteousness, how can he judge us? Now, 
it would just be crazy. I think any sensible head would be crazy to think that actually by doing evil, or that we would want to do evil so that good could come out of it, because it shows the true nature of our hearts. But God always, always, always judges the world righteously. And very often we view this situation of the world a bit like this, that that God is right and that humans are wrong. Now at face value that seems a fair statement. However, that is not what Paul is saying here. Because this idea makes it sound as if God and Israel or God and us are actually simply opposing parties in a lawsuit. In essence, we bring God down to our level. So we think that when God judges the world and condemns the wicked, he's acting as a judge in his own case. But God is not a party in a lawsuit against Israel, or for that matter, against us. God is sovereign. He transcends above everything. He is the one who is Lord and supreme over all. He is the true judge, and he is not compromised. And he will do what is right. So let me just tie some of this stuff to How do we apply this sort of stuff to our lives? Well, just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you have living faith. So turning up to church doesn't necessarily make you a follower of Christ. Living a good moral life or even a religious life doesn't mean that your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. You need Jesus. You need to apply the gospel to your heart and to your life. So how can we tell if our faith is empty and we're actually facing judgment? Even if we are very active members of a church, well, we need to examine our hearts. Religion and self-effort will only lead to empty faith. I'll say it again. Religion and self-effort will only lead to empty faith. It will exhaust you and will destroy you. You need Jesus. So Paul alludes to four signs here that perhaps we need to just apply and just ask of ourselves. The first is this, verse 21. Do we have a theoretical only approach to the Bible? So we don't allow ourselves to be challenged or changed by it? Well, if that's the case, you need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the truth of God's word. Secondly, do you have a feeling of moral superiority? It's verse 17. It's called pride. Do you look down on others? Are you defensive when your weaknesses are exposed? Again, we need to apply the gospel to our lives. Third thing, do you lack an inner spiritual life? Verse 29. You don't pray or you don't know that God loves you. Actually, you've got no assurance of your salvation. Again, we come back to the cross. We come back to Jesus. The fourth is hypocrisy. Verse 22. Do you say one thing, but the way in which you live says something else? Are you a certain person here on a Sunday morning at church while everybody's watching, but actually the rest of the week you're behaving very differently? You need to ask God's Spirit to increasingly work within your heart to give you living faith. And Paul's conclusion 
Everybody needs to be saved. Whether you feel morally good or, or morally undeserving, you need to receive God's righteousness. Because there is no one righteous, not even one. And listen, the biggest danger for true godliness is following rules. It will lead you down a path that will ultimately lead you away from Christ. You need him. You need him alone, by faith alone. And the answer, no matter who you are, is Jesus. Now it may seem a bit trite to say that, but that is, he is the only answer for your life Christ alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Listen, we need him. We absolutely need him. And as you put your trust in him, as you allow him to be Lord of your life, he will do what religion cannot do. He will change your heart by his spirit. This is the gospel. This is your hope. This is your defense. This is our future in Christ. We've talked about already. Our hope is certain in him. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the challenges that it brings. But Lord, thank that when you speak to us, when you challenge us, Lord, it is only to bring us closer to you, to your son, Jesus. And Father, I want to just, Lord, just want to just speak against any condemnation that would come as a result of this. Because that is the work of the enemy. But Father, I want to pray for a Holy Spirit challenge and conviction within our hearts today. Father, convict us of our sin. Convict us of our religion. And Father, may we come to you and find our hope in you, our strength in you. Father, may, me, may we be gospel-centered people who apply it to our life. Lord, you've saved us, but also, Lord, we need the gospel to keep us. And so, Father, each day, Lord, we come back to you and we apply the truth of your word, the truth of our salvation that comes through faith and through Christ alone to our hearts and to our lives today. Father, thank you for your love. And Father, I do pray now that you would just bless us with your spirit. Equip us for this week ahead. Lord, help us as we just ponder these verses, these thoughts, Lord, over the next few hours, the next few days. Father, that you would continue to speak to us. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you, again, it's a, it's, this is hard stuff. It's not, we make no bones about it. Last week, we talked a lot about our sinfulness. This week, those who think they're pretty okay, morally good, stand in exactly the same place as those who are blatant sinners. You need Jesus. And if you haven't received him, if you haven't invited him to come into your life, come and chat with me. I'd love you to introduce you to him. He is everything that you need. Everything that you need. Amen.